0: to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Here's a question for you. What does toxic masculinity have to do with the war in Ukraine? Well, we're going to explore that in this episode. We're also going to talk about some underlying reasons why the war began, how it's going to include going back and looking at some predictions we made in March of last year. And then finally, we're going to offer you our predictions for how we think it's all going to end. All of that. And more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument. I am especially excited about today's episode of Making the Argument because I am not sure what to think about what's going on in Ukraine. If you like me are similarly kind of uncertain what to think, I think this will be really insightful. We're going to get some of the history, and we're going to get their predictions for the future.
1: So it's going to be great. You guys should definitely check out our volley chat. The chat, uh, the link is in
0: the description below. Go over and join us over there to tell us what you think of the episodes and pitch your own ideas for future episodes. So let's get started.
1: I know I'm excited for today's episode. We have Christian and Nick here and Lydia and myself. I know that I'm going to learn a lot because Nick and Christian both are experts on this topic and have a lot of value to provide today. And you know what, Nick, you just got back from session about two weeks ago. You were there for January and February. And next week, you are going on an anniversary vacation.
0: I know. I know. I feel bad. I just got back and here I'm going to leave the studio again, but it's only going to be for one episode. And that is because my wife and I are celebrating, Queen of the Bees and myself are celebrating our 24th wedding anniversary, and wow. we're going to escape. You're going for, to escape. For a week. All right, let, let's jump into this real quick. All right, for, the, for those of you who don't know me, I'm going to give a little bit. Christian and I are probably going to talk a lot about this. Christian is actually working on his master's right now with an emphasis in military history. My background is in Army Special Forces, better known as Green Berets. Uh, we, we specialize in unconventional warfare, counterterrorism, asymmetric warfare. And, um, the reason I mention all that up front is because I, I want you to know that we, I, I would say we got a little bit of credibility with respect to just understanding how this nature, how the nature of the war in Ukraine is is going. And the first thing I want to talk about is well, before I start on anything, I just want to say right up front because people have this has become a political football in the United States um, in, in ways that I didn't anticipate. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to lay out a couple of things real quick. So you guys kind of know where I've stood all along so I can get that out of the way. And you're not guessing as we talk about this, because a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is analysis of the situation. It's not advocacy for a particular position. It's analysis of the situation. So look, um, I, I think Putin and I think Putin's invasion of Ukraine was, um, illegal. Um, I, I want Ukraine to, to push Putin out. Um, but by the same token, I don't think it's the United States' responsibility to win this war for Ukraine. I just don't. And I think a lot of our foreign policy uh, has been problematic, both with respect to why the war started in the first place. I think it's been problematic with respect to, you know, what is our role and commitment going forward? Um, And... I want you guys all to know that up front, that, that that's where I'm coming from. Like, I'm I'm not like some people are like I, I, have, I have said things before on this where people are like, oh, you're 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 just listening to Russian propaganda or oh, you're just listening to Western propaganda. It's like, no, I, I don't I don't like countries, you know, aggressively invading other countries. And I think they should lose when they do. By the same token, I don't think every fight is the fight of the United States so that we should bear the brunt of the responsibility. So that's where I'm that's my starting point. Step point one here that we're going to talk about is why the war started. Because there's, there's two competing narratives, and what everyone needs to understand is when a war breaks out, everybody's engaging in propaganda, right? If you're not engaging in propaganda, you're probably not doing it right, right? Everybody's engaging in propaganda. Um, the Russian propaganda associated with this, uh, it's it, it's historical in, in some ways, and I would say it goes through a couple of points, and I want Christian to elaborate on some of this. Um, you know, the, the official reasons that Russian gave was you you had these two break-off separatist groups uh, in the Donbass area of Ukraine. Um, they, they claimed that there was, um, you know, uh, abuses going on in that area. Russia was, I think, the first and only country, there might have been one, maybe Belarus, recognized them as, as breakaway republics and then put themselves in the position of, of uh, protecting like the the ethnic populations, the, the ethnically Russian populations within the Donbass region. Um, And they also said that they wanted to engage in denazification and that Ukraine was- That came a a little bit later. Yeah, it was a Bolshevik. And again, part of that is, uh, you know, again, I think part of that is some convenient propaganda because they understand that nobody likes the Nazis, That's also
1: around the time that Russia took Crimea, what was was at the same time that Luhansk and Donetsk broke off and tried to form their their own quasi-independent states. And then right before Russia invaded, Russia annexed those states. They had already annexed Crimea, um, the the big thing on the Russian side, well, I'll end with, the, with this on the Russian side. The Russian propaganda behind the war was basically that the pro-Russian government that had been in charge of Ukraine in 2014 had, from Russia's point of view, been illegally overthrown in the Euromaiden, um, uh, also known as, known as the Revolution of Dignity. Um, this was in 2014. Before 2014, there was a huge chunk of the Ukrainian population that was pro-Russian. Um, also because there's a huge Russian minority that lives in Ukraine and Russia is the second spoken language in Ukraine. This revolution happened, the pro-Russian government gets toppled and Russia basically viewed that as, oh, okay, well, Ukraine is now our enemy. So Russia helped fund these separatist groups in the Donbass, Russia invaded Crimea, annexed it, and then kind of stopped, right? It became yeah. a frozen conflict. Ukrainian, uh, the Ukrainian military fought back to re to try to retake control of the of the Donbas, they only halfway succeeded, and so it became a frozen conflict for about eight years. Fast forward eight years later, and Russia then decides to pull the trigger and go all in and yeah. basically well, try and, to conquer the country. And
0: part of this too is is with it with the new government, they saw Ukraine, you know, getting closer and closer to the West, potentially joining NATO, and so they they use that as as kind of a threat to their sphere of influence because traditionally speaking. You know, Eastern Europe was Warsaw Pact. It was part of the old Soviet Union, and, and before and, that,
1: part of the Russian Empire. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. You know, Poland wasn't even a, a, you know, a, 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 I mean, it was a part of Russia for a significant period of time, as was uh, Ukraine and everything else. So it's it's important to understand that context from you know the the Russian perspective. Now, does any of that justify the invasion? No, I don't think it does. But it, it's it's important to understand that it's not as simple as. Putin woke up one day, it was clouding on a Tuesday, and said, you know, it would be cool having Ukraine, right? Like, that's not exactly what happened here. Again, doesn't justify what he did, but that that was the justification. It's important to understand why the war started. Yes. And you
1: can't understand yeah. that unless you understand the motivations, as flawed as they may be, yeah. behind the aggressive side. Yeah. And the aggressive side in this case was Russia. So that's yeah. the Russian case, that, right? That's
0: the Russian case. Obviously, the Ukrainian case is very easy, they don't want to be a part of Russia, right? And they don't want to lose territory to Russia. They've already lost Crimea, and and they don't want to lose the the Donbas area as well because they see this as as part of a as part of a long term strategy by Russia to essentially turn Ukraine into something of a puppet or satellite state of Russia. Another Belarus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and what's interesting about this is uh, there's there's always been something of a of a unique Ukrainian culture, right? Even though it was part of the you know, Kiev and Rus. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's actually a really fascinating history. There, there's always been, but I, I would say now more than ever, if, if Russia was worried about Ukraine seeing itself as an entirely separate independent nation with its own Russia, Russia, is, has achieved it Mm -hmm. because there, there was certain things and and this is, so this is how the war started. We're going to talk now about how it's going. So it started because of all these different, you know, concerns. And obviously we know why Ukraine's fighting. We know why the West is backing Ukraine because they're worried about the emergence of, of, you know, you know, Russian aggression within the region. Um, so all all that kind of makes sense, right now we go into how the war is going. One thing I'm going to say is kind of like a, a special element of pride here is Christian and I started talking about this in, in February when the war began and, and we actually did, I think both a podcast and a y minute. we did a Y minute on it, like within a week of the invasion, we, we did a podcast, we did a Y minute and we, we started doing like shorts and things like that, talking about our predictions there and keep in mind early on, especially the first few days, everyone was like, oh my gosh, the Russians are just, you know, bulldozing over, over Ukraine right now. They're already in, in Kiev, um, but one of the things that we said early on is that yeah on, on paper, you know, you, Ukraine has a population of 41 million, Russia has a population of about 145 million. Um, the Russian economy is is significantly you know, yeah, larger. Yeah, than I, Ukraine's. I think like three times bigger than Ukraine's and their least. their military was yeah.
1: way better funded and better equipped. Yeah,
0: mi- military was signi- like multiples and multiples, you know, more powerful than Ukraine's military. And so it made sense that, you know, a, a somewhat surprise attack. It wasn't a, a total shock to the Ukrainians, but it, it was still a surprise attack. Um, and, and all that taking place and, and the initial gains that they made, it, it looked like Russia was going to dominate this. And, and we sat down and when we talked about how this would go, what we said was if, if Russia doesn't seal the deal within a month and, and what we considered sealing the deal was two major things. One, they had to essentially you know, topple or get the uh, Ukrainian government to go into exile so they either had to they either they had to get rid of Zelensky or Zelensky had to go into exile and essentially try to you know fight the war abroad in a safe place. And they had to effectively destroy the Ukrainian military to where they might have been fighting an, an insurgent group, even an organized insurgent group. But essentially, there wouldn't have been a a strong centralized conventional military to rally behind. And and what we said was, if he doesn't do those two things right away, a couple of things are going to happen. One, the Ukrainian military is going to Survive. It's going to basically stay within defensible borders, both geographically and within urban areas. If if Zelensky steps up and decides to lead, which I don't care what you think of Zelensky, he has done that, right? And I and I I think he's corrupt, but he he's done that. He he stayed he stayed there, and and he didn't flee. He was offered a ride, and, and again, I don't know how much of this is propaganda, but a it, lot of it was propaganda. Like, but yeah.
1: what wasn't propaganda? Is like, he didn't leave? Like, hit, hit, this line that everybody used, the whole "I don't need a ride, I need I ammunition. need ammo," or that was that was a myth. He yeah. never he, he, he no, honestly he never said that. That yeah. was propaganda. So was the ghost of Kiev. All these yeah, things yeah, were propaganda. Yeah. But but he what wasn't propaganda? Yeah. What was fact was is that he did stay in the country yeah. and yeah. he didn't flee. Kiev, you know, or sorry, Kiev. They renamed it. Yeah, right? yeah. It so, used to be Kiev. <laughs> well, it's all
0: about pronunciation based off of Russian versus Ukrainian. But the 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 issue is, he he stayed in that position, and the Ukrainian military didn't dissolve. It wasn't eliminated. And the other thing that we said was part of the problem with how fast Russia has moved in some of these areas is that they've left urban centers along their supply chain, along their supply routes. So I said, here's what's going to happen. It is a, it is very easy to fight people out on on flat terrain and farmland when when you've got you know a hundred tanks rolling across the countryside. It is a lot more difficult to control a determined population within an urban environment because every house becomes a bunker. And Especially if you can't encircle it. And they yes, could not encircle Kiev. They had a Kiev. horrible time. They that, tried to encircle Key, it. Not only Kiev, they had a hard time encircling other places. They couldn't too, on encircle the Kharkiv it. either. Yeah, they, they, they went with this Blitzkrieg notion, but the problem was is that that only works if you would have taken the, the kind of the central hub. If you had taken Kiev, if you had destroyed the Ukrainian military, if you would gotten Zelensky, then it probably wouldn't have mattered as much that you left all these potential pockets of resistance mm-hmm. along your supply and your lines of communication. Well, they did that. And then here's what happens. So now the 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 uh, initial push is petered out. You haven't achieved your major objectives. And what we said was going to happen is the West is just going to start loading up the Ukrainians with, and it, it's not like they're going to give them a bunch of tanks initially. What they're going to give them is Javelin anti-tank. They're going to give them Stinger missiles. They're going to give them AT-4s. They'll give There's, them small arms. Yeah. Too. Well, and, and it's not even the small arms. Yes. But the big thing was, is I said, what this becomes is an asymmetric problem for the Russians. The Ukrainians know, especially the ones fighting in these urban areas, it's not as if they're going to take out an Iraqi tank division or, or the battalion combat teams that, that most of the Russian military was, was fighting and that that was the configuration of a lot of their units. But what they are going to do is take a, you know, $50,000 round from a javelin, you know, anti, anti-tank weapon or, or, you know, a much cheaper round from an AT-4 and they're going to kill or disable a $20 million, $30 million tank and they're going to kill four crew members in there. And the bottom line is that adds up. And the Russian response to that is going to be to be more brutal. The more brutal they are, the more they're going to actually unify Ukrainians, and the more, the more they're going to actually add to the West resolve to ensure that Russia doesn't win. Well, guess what? That's what happened. So Russia was on the doorstep of Kiev. Uh, they were coming in both from the north, and they were also coming in from the um, from the northeast. And then the Donbass region... Uh, Mariupol was a, was a siege they held out in Mariupol far longer than than Russian planners had anticipated they would. The logistics for the Russian military was all planned around this idea that, hey, this is going to be over in a couple of weeks, and now here we are, you're into it. And what ended up happening was the Russians had to redeploy forces yeah, can, in order can to shore up their lines. Can I
1: give an analogy here? Yeah. Y- you, you brought up at the beginning of this podcast that, that I'm working on a master's in history with a focus on military history. There's an example to explain Why it looks like briefly that Russia was on the cusp of winning. And then suddenly they have to like, I mean, at one point they were on the verge of encircling the capital. They were on the verge of encircling Kharkiv. They had penetrated deep into the interior of Ukraine. And then suddenly a month later, two months later, by April, they were starting to fall back. They had abandoned the siege of Kiev, which had had never become a siege, but they tried to turn it into one. The battle of of Kiev turned into a Ukrainian victory. The Russians ended up abandoning the entire northern part of the country. And then eventually they abandoned the northeastern part of the country and pulled out of Kharkiv as well. And now they're just holding the Donbass and they're holding the South. And it it reminds me a lot of Operation Typhoon, which was the German attempt to encircle Moscow at the very tail end of the um of Operation Barbarossa, Barbarossa. in 1941. The Germans tried to, once again, they managed to pull it off many, many times, many cases very successfully. Um, actually, ironically enough, in... Uh, Kiev itself, they encircled 700,000 Russians at the beginning of Operation Barbarossa. It was the largest military encirclement in history up until that point in time. They tried to do it again in Moscow at the very end of 1941, and it failed for many reasons, the weather being one of them, but not only. And what happened was is that when the Germans, the offensive just petered out and they couldn't seal the deal, suddenly the Germans found themselves holding very indefensible forward positions yep. that were not designed to receive an attack, they were designed to launch an attack from. Yeah. And so therefore, once the offensive was done and the Russians were able to launch their own strategic winter offensive, a counterattack, the Germans had to pull back hundreds of miles. Yeah at the very end of it, because they were holding forward positions that that were not designed to receive an attack. And the Russians had to do the exact same thing. They couldn't hold these positions. They were going to be using them to try to encircle these key centers and seal the deal. The minute that that was out of the equation, it was basically guaranteed that the Russians were going to have to pull back to the lines that they currently hold as of the recording of this podcast.
0: Yeah. And, and, And that's where we find ourselves. And so, and again, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we had some sort of great you know, incredible, unique insight back in February and March of last year. But, you know, having a knowledge of asymmetric warfare and how this works and what happens when you have extended supply lines and lines of communication that are not defensible, it, it's not hard to predict. And so that that is essentially what happened. And now we find ourselves in a situation where both sides are on essentially defensible terrain right along the Donbass, major rivers, major terrain the features. Dnieper. In the, sorry, the Dnieper. And then, um, and then the Crimea. Um, so so that's that's where things currently sit. Now, the thing I want to talk about is not just Western involvement and specifically US involvement in Ukraine, but I want to talk about the European response to all of this. And this is where it gets into that, that thing I talked about initially. Like, what does toxic masculinity have to do with what's going on in Ukraine right now? And here's here's my theory on this. We have this big debate going on in the United States right now about toxic masculinity. Well, what's toxic masculinity? Well, it's aggression, it's competitiveness. It's all those things that we used to associate with just typical male behaviors, right which could have a positive um, a positive outworking or a negative outworking, right? They weren't toxic in and of themselves. It depended entirely on the context. But they weren't treated that way by you know departments of of you know psychology. And it was, and, and I've always gotten this feel that many European countries—I'll kind of leave, I'll leave the UK out of this to some degree—but many European countries have always had this I- idea, this attitude toward the United States that we're the bull in the China shop, we're the big knuckle draggers, and yeah, we've got a big economy and we've got a big military, and we love to go around and sling it everywhere in order to show how powerful we are, whereas they are the nice, refined, sophisticated individuals. They're the advanced people that understand that this is just not the way you're supposed to conduct yourself. And really what we have to look at is is greater understanding and communication between nations. And and, and so and, and again none of not that any of that is bad in and of itself, but it was always this this kind of I think ridicule that was foisted on the US by a lot of European countries. Particularly from France and Germany. Yes. Particularly from France and Germany. Now and, and so America in this narrative that I'm I'm talking about right now. America was the toxic male, right? They were all the they were all the refined males wearing their berets and in coffee shops talking about existentialism while we were just the you know the knuckle draggers. Then all of a sudden Putin invades Ukraine. Now, what's the European response to this? Was the European response is like, "Well, I know what we need to do. We need to have a a hug session or maybe a drum circle or or you know, with, with no, their reaction was well, what's the U.S. going to do? Like, are you guys, guys going to stop him? And my attitude is, why, why should we? You've told us, you've told us all the things, all the things that make the United States, that puts us in an ideal position to be able to stop someone like Putin or all the things that you regularly chastise and ridicule us for. And, and if, by the way, have decided to eradicate from your own societies to the degree possible, but now all of a sudden when it hits the fan, who are you running to? right it, it 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 isn't it isn't your existentialist barista right like you want you want americans to once again solve the problem and i guarantee you if we did like if we really went over and they decided to put boots on the ground within 6 months they'd be complaining about us being there and that's the part that i have just become fed up with and and one of the primary reasons is this go ahead and look up go ahead and look up countries based off of their gdp Let's look, let's look at countries based off of their population. Let's look at countries based off of their defense spending. Here's what you're going to find out really quick. And, and this is something that Trump, uh, to his credit, articulated with respect to NATO. Countries like Germany, countries like um, France, countries like Italy, all of these countries have bigger economies than Russia. Italy Italy has an economy that, that's that's on par with Russia. But it, Germany it's, it's, and it's France. close. Ger- Germany is significantly bigger. France is- Is, is significantly s- bigger. The United bigger. Kingdom
1: is- Canada has a larger economy yeah. than Russia.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of people, when they think about Russia, they look at a map and they see this huge- It's the largest country in the world. They think it's a superpower. And they think it's a superpower. And ironically
1: they, enough, the Russians do the same thing.
0: Yeah. But the, <laughs> the thing is, is that when, when it really comes down to brass tacks, the Russian economy is not that much bigger than the Mexican economy. Right, so so why is that why is that meaningful here? Well, because it turns out it's it's really hard to fight long, sustained wars successfully if you're not wealthy, because it turns out war's pretty expensive. So one of the things that I, I remember us saying early on, we were like, Russia does not have the economy to actually sustain these sorts of losses over an extended period of time, and a lot of people, oh, what are you talking about? They've got 145 million people, and Ukraine's only got 41. I'm like. Yeah, I'm sorry, but if you're losing five soldiers for every one of the other side's using, that math doesn't add up. And not to mention the fact that I, I'm sorry, but the number of people that you have in uniform with an AK-47 doesn't mean as much, right? If if they're just gonna, if they're going to get killed by a 155 millimeter artillery round given to them by the United States, right? Just technology matters. And so we find ourselves in this situation where okay, Russia with an economy smaller than the, th- at least two, arguably three of the most prominent members of the EU, and definitely smaller than the, the three major um, economies of part of NATO, France, the UK, and Germany. Right? So you, you would ask yourself, like, okay, Ukraine is obviously fighting as hard as they possibly can, and then you have the European Union, which is the second large. like if you take all their economies together, it's the second largest economy in the world after the United States. So they have the resources, they, they have the military equipment, they, they have the production capacity to be able to support all of Ukraine's warfighting needs. And yet, it's the United States that is dependent upon in order to provide the bulk of the military equipment and the financing in order to help Ukraine. And and my point is is I want to look back at all these countries that are constantly talking trash about the United States precisely because of our military prowess and say, well, wait a second. You guys told us that our our approach to the world was antiquated and outdated and too aggressive and that what we really needed was, was an approach that was much more like Germany or France when it came to dealing with international relations. Okay, prove it you going to line up? You're going to send French soldiers over there? You're going to send German soldiers over there? You're going to do that? You, you're going to... Uh, here's an idea. Are you just going to, I, I don't know, reduce a fraction of the spending that you spend on your large social welfare states in order to contribute to your defense spending what your participation in NATO requires you to? <laughs> Which, Were you going to do of them, that? None of them
1: uphold that other than basically the
0: UK and France. Yeah. you going to do any of that? And the answer is no. Because when it, again, once again, when it hits the fan, the same people complaining on, on a micro level, the people complaining about oh, toxic masculinity. Well, on a national level, where they essentially have the same philosophy, once again, it's well, what's the US gonna do about this? Well, I'm looking at it and I'm going, You know what we should do if, about if it? The, if, the European Union, if the European Union was made up of a bunch of countries with a fraction of the economy and population of Russia, I would understand. I would understand Estonia coming to us and going hey, we could really use some help right now. I would understand Poland saying, hey, we could really use some help right now. I don't understand the European Union looking at us like, well, when are you going to send your troops over to stop the Russians, <laughs> right? Like, when are you going to do? It? Well, I don't know, France, when are you going to do it? You know what? You know I think what? Germany's we do? just shocked. They're the ones not invading someone this time.
1: We should be doing the exact same thing that the French and Germans did at the start of this. We should just be projecting Ukrainian flags on buildings and painting streets blue and yellow and putting putting the Ukrainian flag emoji in our profile pictures right. and then pat ourselves on the back about how sophisticated we are and how we did something about it. Because that's literally what the European Union did at the start. Yeah. Ukraine had been asking for military aid from Germany for a year. Yeah. And didn't get any. Yeah. Until until ju- just a few weeks ago, when Germany finally announced that they would be sending leopard tanks to no, Ukraine, yeah. which is, I told Nick before we started filming this um this podcast that this will actually be the first time since August 1944 that German tanks will be in Ukraine. Wow.
0: <laughs> well, I think it's yeah, I think it's interesting that the Ukraine's plea to their European neighbors was like, hey, can can we have some military support? And the Germans like. Well, we, we cannot give you the tanks or anything of like use for this. But what if, what if, just spitballing here? what if we drew blue and yellow and our sidewalks, would that be helpful? No, Germany <laughs> it would not be helpful. It would not be helpful. Thank you very, thank you very much. This is so. I guess, I guess, what you're saying is, is they did, they did try to apply
1: their philosophy, and they found out that the Ukrainians were not looking for countries to be
0: emotionally available. <laughs>
1: That's not what they wanted.
0: Yeah. I do. <laughs> We didn't want to have a good hug session with, with Germany. We actually wanted some help to, to beat the guy that essentially you accused the U.S. of being. Yeah. I mean, that's really what this is. Putin proved to them that what you're concerned of does exist. It wasn't us. And it turns out when the, when the bad, mean, aggressive guy shows up with some power, you want a good guy to show up with some power. Oh my gosh, like every other aspect of life. But you told us that really what was needed here was just, you know, just some more understanding, emotional availability. Maybe we should sit down with Putin and ask him, you know, what his childhood was like, the underlying causes of his of his aggression. You know, okay, well that that didn't work. He might be suffering from internalized white supremacy. <laughs>
1: Maybe, maybe if we just politely ask him to leave.
0: Yeah. You know, well, you know why this, you know why all this happened is because they don't have enough DEI programs in in Russia. I
1: I actually, the, the, the big problem was, is that they don't have enough rural broadband
0: um, yeah, that's right. yeah that's, if they <laughs> had more rural <laughs> if Russia had more rural broadband. They would they would have done this, like uh, all of the things that you know are 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 listed as the underlying problems, they are the 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 genuine causes of all of yeah. the angst in the world. They haven't had enough infrastructure weeks.
1: Yeah, um, that's they, it. I, I, but like, okay, we're we're joking about some of these things. So, some of what we're saying is I think actually funny. Some of it is somewhat you know dark humor here. But I, I think that that the average audience member that's listening to our show probably share some of our concerns that that you know this might not necessarily be our fight we're yeah. being dragged into it so far the united states has given around 100 billion dollars worth of financial and Which military equipment we've
0: given almost double what the annual defense budget of russia was before the war
1: we've given more than what the gdp of russia is yeah. I, like like i mean it it's kind of incredible um Sorry, not GDP. GDP. Um, Give him more than what the entire, what you said, defense given more budget. than what the entire defense budget of Russia is yeah. on a per almost two years worth yeah. of the Russian defense budget.
0: And now, and now, and now Biden's actually talking about actually sending money over to, to not just for military expenditures or medical percentage, but actually to reinforce like their social welfare state. Oh, that was, the, that was the incredible thing. I was talking to Lydia right before
1: this podcast too, and, and her and I kind of agreed on this that like it is ridiculous that Joe Biden will ignore a call from the mayor of East Palestine, refuse to go and visit, refuse to 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 even recognize that it's a problem, what's going on there. And then the same week that he will snub the people in Ohio, he'll show up, he'll pop up in Kiev. Yeah. How many voters are in Kiev? Yeah. Well, I, I mean He snubbed what used to be a swing state too. I mean, that really goes to show how much of the the Rust Belt the Democratic Party has just completely written off at this point. Fly over country. I mean, they they treat these people like ignorant rural rubes that are are not worth the time of day. Oh, but he's going to go fly over to Kiev and announce that we're going to send another couple billion dollars over to Ukraine. And we're going to be using that money to fund their welfare programs. I understand... And, and I know that it's increasingly being more and more unpopular for conservatives. I understand why we're sending some military aid to Ukraine. I do not understand why we are funding their welfare state no. at the same time that well, apparently our
0: infrastructure is falling apart here in the U.S. Because I, I think, I, hon- I honestly believe and And again, this is, why do you bring up toxic masculinity? Because it's part... We, we look at these things and we try to look at them and, and they get treated like they're isolated. Well, no, this is just kind of an academic argument going on in the United States. No, it isn't. It's part of a larger philosophy with respect to how you interpret things in the world. Right. And, and let me give another example of this. And this is going to kind of t- tie into I want to tie this all into what you were saying about financing that after World War I. Um, I, I can't remember who was talking about this, but they were saying that if you went into the education systems in Germany and the UK and France after World War One, Oh, I know this story. Right, in after World France in World War One fought for every inch of French territory. To, to give you an idea, they lost
1: three hundred thousand men in the first three weeks of the war.
0: Like we can't even we can't even conceive of that. But that was that was the degree of French resolve to fight against the Germans in World War One. Now, what this guy was saying is he he analyzed the way that children in each country were taught about the war. So the children in Germany were basically taught that the German army was was kind of um stabbed in the back. They were stabbed, stabbed in the, the back, stab- they were betrayed, uh that the Treaty of that Versailles But they never actually really lost. Yeah, they never really lost. They, you know, they could have won. In in the UK, they were taught that the people that fought against it were were heroes of of, you know, England and Great Britain and uh, they, they were to be admired. And in France, they taught their students that war is always horrible and everyone was a victim, that, that people were a victim of the war. They, they did a whole lot less in, in holding up kind of like their heroes of, of French uh, resistance to the Germans in World War I. They did a lot more of this idea that war is a tragedy that happens, and, and everybody that's, that's touched by it is, is essentially a victim of war. Now, you can look at elements of that and be sympathetic to it. You can also understand why it happened in France. Because the war because the war largely took place the in France. The war was fought in France. Yeah.
1: This is the one component of the stab in the back myth that, that Germany... The stab in the back myth is 90% false. But the one part that's true is the war was not fought on German soil. Yeah, but it was the, fought the, on French soil. But
0: the argument that you have to look at here is in the mentality that was created then is that... when Fast forward to World War II, France was done. They were done before the fighting even started. They, they were done before the fighting even started because why would you fight for something that's always a tragedy and you're all victims? And and people look at, well, it's not that simple. I'm not claiming that's the totality of the reason. Uh, what I'm saying is, is that if you, if you equip a civilization to believe a certain way about the world and how things work, well, then that will manifest itself and how they respond to threats and danger and discomfort. The incredible thing is that it manifests
1: itself in the political class, in the general staff yeah. of the French... Uh, public and military, it didn't necessarily manifest itself in the army and the general public, but those making the decisions yeah. had taken this defeatist victimhood mentality, yeah. and they failed the French military when when you know push
0: came to shove in well, June and May, or and May and June nineteen forty. And this is and this is why I, I think this this mentality. Um, and, and you see a lot of this through critical theory. You see a lot of this through existentialism. You see a lot of it through postmodernism. You, you, you have to take these things into consideration when you're looking at the decisions that people are making and how they've been influenced by these various theories and, and worldviews. It, it, it makes sense that Europe in this situation right now would feel completely entitled to look over to the United States and say, could you solve this problem that's thousands of miles away from you, directly affecting us. And by the way, can you use the military prowess that we constantly ridicule you for in order to solve it? Because we need you to. And because we can't be bothered to do it, we're good and sophisticated, right? Then you look at someone like Joe Biden, how in the world, just from, just from a purely political standpoint, how in the world do you look at a major disaster going on in your own country and then put all of your focus on what's going on in Ukraine? Not because there, there aren't disasters going on in Ukraine, but from a basic sense of priority, right? Like I may really care about a complete stranger two states away that happens to them, but I'm probably going to do more, I'm probably going to do more for my family first. And so here's the question, why are you not doing that? Well, if you have this mindset of that everything is seen through the limbs of oppressor and oppressed, and right now, that that's a narrative that, that is very, very obvious to Joe Biden when it comes to Russia and Ukraine. But it's not obvious when it comes to what's going on in Ohio, not to mention the fact that theoretically they could look at his administration and especially his secretary of transportation and potentially come to conclusions that they could have done something. But now I have not blamed Buddha judge for what happened over there. I blame Buddha judge more for the response to what happened. The lack over there. of a response. Yeah. The response, a lack of response. But, but again, you, you've got these, you've got these two things where if you have a philosophy and a mindset where it's very, very obvious that this over here fits within your, your overall narrative and what's going on in Ohio does not fit within your narrative. Well, then that's what gets the attention. Yeah. And so, the reason why we tie this between the whole toxic masculinity uh, and this philosophical debate and what we see going on and Europe's response to it and Russia's response to it and Ukraine's response to the U.S.'s response to it is because philosophy matters, especially when it becomes part of the general psyche of a civilization. It will impact the way they respond to things, and it will catch people by surprise when it is initially tested. And that's what we're seeing right now. But I want to go into point four. Well, speaking of that's what we're seeing right now. Yeah. Now, I mean, I want to, I want to go into point four of how does this all end? Yep, and I'm going to reiterate this because <laughs> I got in trouble on Twitter when I, I made it. Somebody asked, "How do we think this is going to end in Ukraine?" And I gave a response, and be like, and and both sides started instantly attacking me on this, and I'm like, stop! I didn't say this was an ending I would advocate for. You asked, "What do I think is the most likely outcome based off of what I'm?" this is what I think is the most likely outcome. Do I think it's a great outcome? No. I think some of it is is bad and misjudged. But do I think it has the highest probability of of actually taking place? Yes. And I base that off of not propaganda. I base it off of my own personal experience, knowing something about asymmetric warfare. I base it off of my own experience, understanding a little bit something about politics. So we're going to kind of go around and I, I want... I want Christian to lead off. Hey, Christian, oh how do you think this all ends? So this was
1: something that I was getting into a fight with Nick about. I, I think that this war has has shown the limitations of blitzkrieg warfare. Um, we already knew the limitations of blitzkrieg warfare dating back to the 1940s, and how you can you can overrun Western Europe with it. But okay. blitzkrieg warfare does not always, uh, you know, lead to success in Eastern Europe, as we've seen from the past. The Russians tried to to basically take a page out of the German playbook and the results were somewhat similar. They, they originally had significant success, but if you can't close the deal early on, you're going to have a very difficult time holding the ground that you've already taken. And Russia did have to do that. They had to pull back. They're now digging trenches. We're seeing a, we're, we're, we're seeing a return of, I used a World War II analogy, now to use a World War I analogy, we're seeing a return of trench warfare, especially in the line between the um, Dnieper and Donetsk this relatively flat land that's a very vital supply line uh, for Russia that links Crimea with the heart of Russia itself and their allies in the Donbass. And if the Ukrainians were ever to launch an offensive there, break through and reach the sea, suddenly they've cut the Russian occupation in two. And the only way that they could supply the southern half is through that highway that connects Crimea with mainland Russia that's been attacked repeatedly by, by the Ukrainians. So the Russians are building trenches in some parts, where they feel like that that there there's a vulnerability. In other places they're launching offensives. There's currently a huge battle going on in in Bakhmut um where the Russians are trying to encircle this city. This is a city in eastern Ukraine yeah. in the Donbass region. They're they're trying they're trying to shorten their supply lines and also take land that um the two breakaway republics have claimed going back 8 years ago. Um we don't really know how that battle is going to play out. It looks like Russia might actually be able to encircle the city, but but they're going for much smaller. So how gains. do you how do you see it ending? I I see this eventually. Well, a lot of it depends on the West reaction. But um, to put that to the side for a second, I, I think that this will end up turning into another frozen conflict, similar to how it was a frozen conflict from 2014 to 2022. Um, and a frozen conflict is is a a a war. That has not ended, and the fighting can still flare up every couple weeks or months, or maybe once a year or so. But the front lines are not moving in a big way. You don't see massive armies rolling around. You don't see big tank divisions rolling around. Some examples of frozen conflicts are Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, another example of a frozen conflict is North and South Korea. Yeah. Another example is Cyprus, the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus and the Republic of Cyprus in the south. These are conflicts. There's one in Moldova. With a yeah. Russian breakaway state, yeah, um, like a Soviet style, yeah, state. that uses the hammer and sickle in their yeah, flag, yeah. Um, so th- there's examples all around the world of of conflicts where the fighting hasn't completely died. Yeah, it's ninety percent died, and but it's never completely ended. And I think that unless something changes in the West, or you get some sort of regime change or strategic alteration of the long term goal in Russia, unless one of those two things happen what's probably going to result, it's probably going to boil down to, to almost like a Western Front-style slug fight. Yeah. You want to talk about frozen conflicts from the fall of 1914 until the spring of 1918. The Western Front was a frozen conflict in many ways. Frozen in the sense that the front line didn't move even though millions of men were being slaughtered. Yeah. So I that's my take at the moment. Now, if you want to get into like if the West does something different or if Russia does something different, then that alters the calculation. But I, I think that this is going to drag out to be honest.
0: So I, I think um, so. I, I don't I don't necessarily disagree with that. The one thing I would say, though, is I'm, I'm going to go. I'll, I'll make some wilder predictions just because why not? Right. That way, you will come back later and see if we were right, because I thought we were, we were pretty spot on back in March. But it was a little bit more generalized. Um, I, I think that Putin is an incredibly difficult position Um because he, he's, got to, he's got to engage in fairly significant mobilization right now, which means you're pulling up a whole lot of people to fight in Ukraine that had no idea that they were going to be fighting in Ukraine. When it comes to training and equipping those troops, um, the quality of troops that are going to be coming into the second phase of the battle are going to be nowhere near the quality of, of some of the, the troops in the first element. Um, Doesn't that apply so, to both sides? N- no, and, and let me explain why. Okay. I, it, it, it does to a degree, but I think it's going to impact the Russians' um I think it might impact the Russians more. I I don't think time is on the Russian side right now, which is a strange thing for them because in past it usually is. Every war in the you, past you wait for the winter, you wait for whatever. Okay, but the difference is is that they're now they're now the invaders, right? And they're they're fighting in a situation where you know you have these people going, "Oh, wait till winter comes because the Russians know how to fight in the winter." It's like, "Well, Russian grandparents knew how to fight in the winter. I don't know that the current batch of Russians do." Not to mention the fact that they're fighting Ukrainians. It's not like um you know they they're fighting the You're, Spanish. Yeah. It's not like they're fighting the you know the <laughs> Germans who are, are in a situation where they didn't understand or properly calculate the harshness of the, the Russian winter and they have long supply lines. Well, you have a situation right now where neither side especially has long supply lines. So that, that doesn't factor in quite as much. You have defensible terrain right now, which is the, uh, um, the, the Dnieper, the Dnieper river. Um, I don't see the Russians trying to make another attempt at, at Kyiv through Belarus. Um, Western commitments to Ukraine have have gone up significantly to the point where, as we mentioned before, Germany and France and, and other nations are finally like stepping up to actually provide heavy duty equipment. We're not like we're sending you bandages. Right. They're not doing that. And now they're actually they're, they're actually sending, um, you know, leopard tanks, which is a, a, a very capable modern tank. Um, and that's an that's more of an offensive, you know, capability a lot of the stuff that had previously got over to Ukraine was was more defensive in nature now they're starting to send more things of an of an offensive component which is going to be interesting um, so we'll we'll see what happens as that equipment starts to to get in there but i i don't think time is on the russian side right now because i don't think the quality of troops that are coming in you have a lot of other troops that are are donating resources i also think when you Let's say the Russians get enough armor in there. I mean, the Russians are now becoming dependent upon Iran for a lot of their, their drones that they're buying and, and some of their ballistic missiles that they're, they're, that they're, they're bringing in. They'll probably become more reliant on the Chinese um for for some equipment which i don't know that the china is
1: already starting to send russia some equipment yeah Uh, china is at the point now where it looks like they're sending russia the type of of equipment that the west was sending ukraine at the beginning of this. yeah so that's going to be an interesting dynamic
0: as well and and i don't know how much china will commit to that um because there's china is going to serve its own interests first and russia winning or losing in ukraine doesn't necessarily have a have a huge impact um they could they will position themselves to turn out the winners, whether or not Russia wins or loses over this. So I, I think what ends up happening is you have this kind of stalemate in in the Donbass region, um, even with even with more tanks coming in. I, I, I don't I don't know that the Ukrainians are going to be able to launch a, a major offensive over the uh Dnieper any better than the Russians could launch an offensive going back. So um I, I think you're gonna end up with some sort of stalemate. And then the the potential settled peace I could see taking place is the Russians maintain Crimea. Um the Donbas stays ostensibly with Ukraine, but um you almost get kind of not an autonomous zone, but you, you get a lot more um, kind of a, a federalist approach as opposed to a more national approach. And what I mean by that is it, the United States is a federated republic We're a federal constitutional Republic, which means States have a great deal of power over their, their local decisions, taxing authority, mm-hmm. things like that. I could see some sort of similar agreement, maybe tied on with some sort of like future election for some sort of peaceful um, thing. And, and, the the part of that would that gives Putin the ability to save face that we were going in there to protect these people's rights. Um and we did that. Right? And then and they keep the Crimea so we didn't lose any territory. How do you factor in? Wait a second, I'm not done. Okay. They didn't lose any territory. Now the other question of that is well, wait a second, Zelensky and the Ukrainians have said they're not giving up anything. Well, okay. Them getting Crimea back out of this was not even something that was originally considered. And the only ways that the Ukrainians could get Crimea back from Russia is if just constant massive infusion from money from the West. And quite frankly, Western Europe is cold right now because they're dependent upon Russian uh, energy. Um, not to mention the fact that Europeans at some point- well, are, That's another thing that we didn't even yeah, bring up. Yeah, At some point, Europeans are going to look over at Zelensky and be like, hey, dude. You're going to take the, take deal, the deal, right? Because we're, Santa is, is going away, right? So, but what they're going to give Zelensky, what they're going to give Zelensky, he's going to get the Nobel Prize Prize because he's going to agree to a deal that keeps the Donbass region still ostensibly a part of Ukraine. He's not going to question Crimea because Russia already annexed that. And, and this is not a war where, where Ukraine picks up territory. It's a war where Ukraine keeps it. Um, and then Zelensky is also going to get a whole bunch of deals from the West on aid, rebuilding aid. And so Zelensky is going to come out of this as, you know, getting the Nobel peace prize, securing a bunch of aid, uh, to rebuild. He's going to get very favorable trade deals. He's going to get all of that. And Putin's going to get to walk away saying we went there to protect the ethnic Russians of the Donbass. And we achieved that through this, you know, semi-autonomous, you know, thing that I think is the best case scenario that I think is the best case scenario. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and predict that I could, I could see a world where, where that is what takes place. And that ends up being the end state. We go back to pretty much the same borders. Putin gets to claim nominal victory with his own population, which is the only population he cares about. Zelensky, you know, basically gives up on some of the more audacious claims that they were making about, we're taking it all back. Um, I have and one he get, he, question. He gets that he gets that through, you know, again, recognition through Nobel Peace Prize and then he gets it through a whole host of like guaranteed aid packages coming from the west if he if he just gives in on that. I have
1: one question. Yeah. How do we factor in the fact that Russia has annexed the um oblasts that they partially occupy? Russia annexed yeah, last yeah. I, year. I don't
0: I I don't think I, so that's again in the world where a good compromise is is made up of everybody being unhappy about the outcome, the the question is going to be because again at some point the Russian economy is, is hurting right now pretty bad. They they need they need Westerners buying the the you know the oil the gas everything else that they do. So the the deal with Putin behind the scenes is going to be you're 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 back up on Swift. You're um you know you're you're able to sell again. You know there's going to be a massive infusion of cash. Uh, as a result of, of giving up on this. And again, the they're going to keep Crimea. That's going to be one of the other things, is Putin's going to be able to say we didn't lose any territory. And then the other part with the Donbass region is going to get to say that, again, they secured some sort of future referendum election, but this is still there, and so now it's self-determining. And so now he gets to say... We didn't give up territory. We okay. annexed it for the purpose of, of protecting the Russians within Donbass, and we've achieved.
1: Well, it. you have a much more positive take on on this than I do because you think the war
0: will end. It's, well, I, I think I know, <laughs> and, and I, I think what it'll do is it might set it up for something in the future. But as, as far as like right now, what I'm looking at is what what. Again, this is the part where sometimes people get mad at me and listen. Well, why not this? Why not that? I'm like, the question is is that un- unless one side of the other is so willing to commit to potentially risk nuclear war on the one side of beating uh, them, or the West just gets tired of helping Ukraine and, and Russia over the next five years builds up enough of a, a thing to be able to take it. I don't see either one of those things happening. And the reason why I don't see it happening is because the West doesn't want nuclear war. Obviously what they want is for the pipeline to come up back online. Right. And to not have to keep pouring money into Ukraine. Um, you know putin doesn't want a protracted war he never did he, what he wants to do right now is save face and come out and to be able to point to something as a as a noble moral victory right cuz he's not going to get land he's going to get a moral victory um and and i see that the 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 outcome i just said is the one that i see where everybody gets a little bit of what they want but the people that really get what they want is the people financing ukraine which is we want an end We want an end to the war. We want Putin to not have, you know, scored a major victory. We don't care what he tells Russians. Um, and and I, that's the one that's the easiest to achieve within that framework. And and I don't think Zelensky is so, you know, nationalistic and adamant about taking back Crimea that he wouldn't take a deal which says, not only are you going to get to claim victory because you didn't give up any terrain that that wasn't. Ukrainian when you took office, right? The Crimea was already gone when he was there. He he, doesn't, he didn't lose any terrain. Plus, he became a an uh, uh, international hero. And I guarantee you, the aid packages that are going to be secured to get Zelensky to agree to this is going to be something where Ukrainians are going to be like, take the deal. So that's, that's why I think it works. I think it works because it does the most for the most amount of people. Um, okay.
1: Nick, quick question for you. What do you think has been the most effective piece of propaganda to come out in the last year, and what have the damages of that propaganda been?
0: Ukraine, so when you say Ukraine has won the propaganda war, you got to keep into fact that all of the West, which has the most influence over media within the world, backed the Ukrainian narrative. Um, so I, I don't think there's one particular thing I could point to, but but the largest propaganda battle in, uh, overall was just Zelensky himself. Um, and, And some of that is not propaganda. Some of it is, again, I don't care how you feel about Ukraine or Zelensky. I'm telling you right now, if you were a Ukrainian, you're probably pretty damn happy with Zelensky because he's managed to secure, you know, billions of dollars in aid and he didn't run. To use the Trump phrase. He's such a smart leader. He's
1: able to get the best deals for his yeah, people. Yeah. He
0: he did like you can all like I, I'm mad because all this money's going to Zelensky. You know who's not mad? Ukrainians, and they're the ones voting for the prime minister of, of uh, or for the leader of uh, uh, Ukraine. So Zelensky in, in himself have, has just mastered that um that that idea of the the resilient underdog, and and look in the West and especially in America, right? Resilient underdogs are very very appealing as an overall propaganda narrative. But there were various things like the ghost of of Kiev and and other things like that that were, were valuable. The, the area where the Ukrainians have screwed up is when they're doing these stupid TikTok dances because oh, it makes it so look cringe. like, wait a second, you're fighting for your very life, but you had time to do this stupid TikTok dance? It's that, so doesn't, that doesn't work for people that are, you know, sending you hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, billions of dollars to fight your war. Um, r- Russian propaganda has just... Been horrible, but in part it was it was difficult for them to achieve in the first place because one, Putin's an autocrat, and that doesn't that's not a very sympathetic figure with most people within the West. Um, the the best propaganda that Putin has done has been to uh, attempt to appeal to certain elements within the United States as basically the person that's fighting against you know denazification or you know Nazis in in Ukraine and. Um, and, and and kind of this attitude the the worst prop- actually I take that back the worst propaganda fail for um zelensky is when he went after the uh, orthodox church um because it reinforced putin's narrative that he was fighting against godless heathens in ukraine <laughs> Um, so that, that's, that would be my answer. I don't know if Christian's got a different
1: one. I think that the, the best propaganda that we've seen, I mean, propaganda is a core component of war. Just, Just, I mean, everybody uses it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a common thing, regardless of which side you're rooting for. I think that, and there's plenty of historical examples. I won't even get into them, but, um, I, I think that, that the most successful piece of propaganda that the Ukrainians have been able to push is this idea that the war is more than just Ukraine. Yeah. Zelensky has really pushed this idea that this is about democracy, this is about the security of all of Europe. Yeah. This is about, you know, decency in the 21st century. Countries don't do this to each other anymore and Russia has broken the And and there and the reason that it's so powerful is because there's an element of that that is true. Yeah, there is. A, and the the most successful pieces of propaganda are ones that are not a hundred percent lies that they have a kernel of truth to them
0: yeah, for, for a long for a long time ever since world war ii we've kind of rejected this idea that wars of conquest are okay like they're it's almost like justinian or not um it's um just war theory i'm, I'm trying to think of the biblical theory. i was gonna say justinian was a firm believer i'm trying to think of the it was I, I, he wrote city of god city of man but um he came up with just war theory, and part of just war theory is aggressive warfare is 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 never moral. Um, Now, that's not to say you can't engage in aggressive tactics once somebody's invaded you or challenged you or what. That's fine, but you're not supposed to start the war. That's why everybody comes up with a causa of spell right? They always come up with a a reason they're going to war that which is actually defensive. I'm not being aggressive. That's what the the Romans always yeah, use Romans, that, right? Because it's wars of aggression are are considered immoral, and that that's been kind of like a a. Common world narrative for the vast majority, uh, and it's of- really picked up since World War II. Yeah. So, what do on- you
1: all think the Russian citizens think about Zelensky? Um, that's a good question. Actually, yeah. that gets me to the Russian side of the propaganda question that you asked. Yeah. So that—that's my answer on the Ukrainian side. Sure. On the Russian side, I actually think that that the the Nazi thing worked in Russia. I, I'm willing to bet we we've seen opinion polls, as flawed as they may be, yeah. that show that Putin has a 70 to 80% approval wow. rating in Russia. And I believe that. I, I actually believe that. I I think it's that, a little
0: inflated, but I for I, I yeah. think
1: a majority, absolute majority of Russians approve of Putin's actions. And you know why? Because when you look at other polls, you find things that from our perspective look crazy, where it's like a majority of Russians long for Stalin. Yeah. Uh, no, seriously. Yeah like, no, like they, that, they they want a strong Russian leader. And and, and so I, I think that this whole idea that, you know, Russia is standing up for for these principles that the West has forgotten. Putin has really leaned into this, like, social conservative component of him where he's he's attacked the West as a bunch of godless heathens. He's accused yeah. the West of funding Nazis in Ukraine. He's talked about, like, for example, you brought up Zelensky with the church Putin has done the opposite. Yeah. In many ways, he's he's backed away from the old Soviet-style state atheism and embraced the Orthodox Church as a core component of Russian culture. And so he's presented himself as this, like, crusader for morality yeah. in some ways, a twisted form of authoritarian morality. But nonetheless, I think the propaganda campaign, here's proof of it. The propaganda campaign in, in Russia is, has been so successful that there has not been a revolution in yeah. Russia.
0: Yeah. I, I, I really thought, I really thought that at this stage in the game, the the one the one thing that I kind of floated out there as a potential thing that um, I, I don't I don't know if I buy anymore, was that if this didn't go well, um, Putin was there because Putin was a strong leader. The Russian people believes he's a strong leader, and they they like that, right? I mean, they, we're talking about multiple generations that grew up under autocratic rule, either through the communist or or through post communism, and Putin was one of those person that had a lot of national pride, and I think that that. You know, was was exuded throughout the population, but I always thought it's like, okay, well, if he goes into Ukraine, he doesn't win, and he gets smacked down. You, you are not, you are not the Russian leader anymore. And so, at what point does somebody else within that that circle, that inner circle, says, I can be bold Russian leader, (laughs) and and take out take out Putin, um, and and essentially fill that fill that role. And, and And it was interesting. the w- the one area where I said I could it, before I thought that was uh, had a higher degree of probability than I, I do now, I although, did too. although I still think it's possible. Um, now the way I think it would be possible is if the Russians launch, like if the Russians do one major and, and this is this is a gamble for Putin because he can stay where he's at right now and he, and he's in good negotiating position. But let's say that he, he does the full mobilization, he gets additional equipment in, and he launches a, a major attack if i was the ukrainians what, what i would do is that i would essentially i would essentially create i would attempt to create a battle of the bulge scenario where i would i would hold fast on my most defensible positions i would i would let them get enough troops and equipment into a bulge and then i would pour everything into circling that off and essentially trapping 20 30 thousand russians um, and then that's where you start the negotiations because at that point Now you've got forty thousand conscripts, right? Thirty thousand conscripts, people that were not Russian, professional Russian military. You've got them now surrounded by Ukrainians. Your your big offensive that was going to, you know, retake everything and put you back in the ascendancy has failed. At that point, you have a huge negotiating chip, and you really have the potential for the population to start to turn on Putin because at that point you're. Can I? I'm, I'm can sorry. I ask a follow- I'm sorry. This isn't. This isn't World War II, where where the only news you got was from Comrade Stalin, right? Like, <laughs> if, if if thirty thousand Russians get encircled, I don't care what Russian state media says. The the parents and the brothers and the sisters and the kids of the thirty or forty thousand encircled would be like, again, you are not strong Russian leader anymore, <laughs> and
1: and they get their people. Can back. I can I ask a follow up question that's kind of related to this? We haven't brought this up before. Is the casualty count? You yeah. told me. I remember like at the very end of last year that like Ukraine has done a really good job of in some ways hiding the number of casualties that they've taken there yeah. was an estimate that just came out very recently that that pegged the number of deaths in this war it's actually incredible at, at 150,000 yeah which is a lot especially in a modern war yeah it's not world war 2 numbers right but it, i mean in a modern conflict that's a oh, lot
0: they, they, you you got to understand like they the, more people have more I'll put it this way. More Russians have died in one year in Ukraine than all of the Americans fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan over a 20-year period. Here's a,
1: here's a better way to describe it. More Russian soldiers have died in 12 months and a few weeks mm-hmm. in, in Ukraine than in the 10-year-long Russian intervention in Afghanistan. Yeah. That's on the Russian side. The yeah. Ukrainian side, they have taken tremendous yeah. casualties as well. Yeah. And and I remember you told me, you you were like, from, from what you were hearing that that ukraine has suffered grievously yeah. russia has too they both have, have been bloodied heavily um I, I think that that's kind of been left out of the equation is is the 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 body count so to speak yeah. and and this war this is why i keep saying that like it's it, from my point of view it's looking like blitzkrieg is starting to fall apart here and and you're you're getting I, into I think you,
0: you had it right the first time blitzkrieg falls apart if you can't seal the deal right away which is true. Yes. Yeah, because we sealed the deal in Iraq.
1: <laughs> I, I'm not saying Blitzkrieg yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. Bl- yeah. I mean, I, Blitzkrieg has been, honestly, in fact, I'm right. My last paper for grad school is about the origin of Blitzkrieg. Yeah. And I think it dates its way back to the Schlieffen Plan, actually. Oh, it does. But, it absolutely But does. Um, I, I, Blitzkrieg has been a component of modern warfare for over 100 years if you take the Schlieffen Plan into account. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's going away, but I do think that we have now seen the limitations of it. To use the example you brought up earlier, you could shoot a fifty thousand dollar javelin and take out a three million dollar tank with that. Yeah, that's not a favorable no. trade off for the guy with the tank. Well, that, so that's that's the
0: asymmetry. And that, that's yeah.
1: Hamilton, do you have any other questions? I mean, I just wanted to ask about the casualty count
0: thing because oh no, I, I think it's huge. I, I think it's interesting how. So I, I, you know, if if you want a good if you want a good YouTube site that has actually done. You know, kind of monthly and I think weekly videos almost on this. Uh, Kings and Generals actually has done I, I think some really good analysis. Now, it, um, yeah, some, some really good. If you, if you want a good visual depiction of what's going on and what units, now when they throw up their casualty figures, I, I'm a, I'm a little bit skeptical. Um, now they'll say it's it's visually verified, um, like tanks and and mm-hmm. I'm I'm a little skeptical of that. Um, just because I, I don't know what they mean by visual verification, because it's like, okay, is that a Ukrainian soldier saying I saw 12 burnt out hulks? Like I, I or is it, is it something else? Like, I, I don't know. I think Russian casualties have been staggering. I think Russian casualties, uh, military casualties have been significantly higher um, than Ukraine. But I, I also think that when I, when I look at some of the casualties for Ukraine, I'm like, eh, I, don't, I don't know if I buy that. I, I don't know. I, oh, I think they're way higher than what I, the Ukrainian I, I, I think government they saying. I think they're higher than what they're saying. And I, and I think that's, and and again, people will say, Oh, they're lying. Well I, yeah, they're at war. <laughs> like I don't I don't blame governments at war for uh, as they're trying to win it to know, how many put, losses. Put the best taking. foot forward, especially when you're when you're fighting essentially a defensive war. Like that just makes sense. It'd be stupid for you to be like, "Oh yeah, we're done in two weeks." Yeah. Like you can't do
1: that. If the if the French government had announced how many casualties <laughs> they took in August 1914, yeah. World War One would have ended very yeah. quickly.
0: <laughs> so I, I yeah I, I think they've I think they've been significant, but again I think we're we're also moving into the first part of this war was heavy on maneuver. And uh, the next part of this war is going to be heavy on attrition and, and static warfare, and, and I, I think you're going to try to see again. The whole question is whether or not Russia tries Russia or Ukraine uh, try one major, one more major offensive breakout. And if that breakout succeeds, then you you throw off all the predictions. If the breakout yeah. doesn't, then we're, we're, because we're, what they're doing right now is these little tiny
1: encirclements yeah. right R- russia's trying to encircle bakhmut this is not some massive strategic operation it's no. a it's a mid-level town and it, i mean it's like verdun or something yeah. like that right? right and 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 i say that in the sense that like it's a small part of the front but it's become so focused right now yeah. but this is you know a penny compared to the the grand scale of, of these massive encirclements the Russians were trying yeah. to pull off when they first launched this invasion. So the focus has narrowed tremendously. And yeah. both sides, the Ukrainian big offensive that they were launching at the end of last year was just to take the west bank of the um uh, of the river that, that flows next to Kharkiv. I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's actually funny. That was the exact same I think it's the Oskill Um, That was the exact same side as the third battle of Kharkiv Mm. in 1943, which was probably the last great Russian military defeat until until this war took place. So it's actually really for, for those at home that are like actually really interested in the course of this war, there's a lot of interesting similarities that you can draw between this and the the conflicts that took place in Ukraine from 1942 to 1944 during World War II. Completely different scenario, different technology, different combatants, but yeah. the geography is still the same. And so it's actually really interesting to see these same rivers and towns and cities being fought over that the Nazis and Germans, or sorry, 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 that, that, that the Nazis and Soviets fought over 80 years ago.
0: Yeah. Well, I think uh, there you have it. We've uh, we've given you our predictions we've we've kind of given an overall viewpoint of the war. Um, again, I, I hope you found this interesting and and I'd love to get your feedback and comments on on what you think with respect to some of the the philosophy involved here because you know that's something that's really important to us. We like to talk about it a lot and we like to talk about it because it matters and we're seeing how it matters in a way that maybe we don't always discuss as much as we should. So once again, thank you for joining us and we'll see you next episode.